you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we're going to be continuing along with our To Judea series, uh, walking through the book of Acts, uh, specifically the kind of the middle part of the book of Acts as the gospel spreads beyond uh, Jerusalem, begins to spread out into Judea and Samaria, uh, as we saw last week at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. Uh, I'm so glad that you guys are here. I know uh, COVID is, uh, has been uh, hitting our area pretty strong, and so I'm um, so glad that you guys are healthy, I hope, and here uh, to worship with us and uh, able to spend some time in the Word this morning. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9, is where we're going to be this morning. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. It says this, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Or Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified, and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you um, that your word teaches and instructs us. God, that you didn't leave us without uh, instruction. You didn't leave us to figure out life on our own, but you have given us your word to equip us, to train us, to correct us. Father, so that we can be, uh, we can be, shaped and molded and grown into the people that you are calling us to be so that we can be equipped for every good work as a body of believers. So Father, I pray that this morning we would long to know what your word uh, says for us, that it would be our desire to apply what you're teaching us in your word, that our ears would be ready to listen, ready to hear what you're teaching, and our heart would be ready to apply it to our lives. We love you and praise you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now, I was going through some old videos uh, of myself a while back, my, some old family footage. See, growing up, we had this really nice video camera because when I was uh, a baby, my dad had a video camera that he recorded some of my first moments and my twin sister's first moments. And then when he went uh, to go get the film developed, they, they told him they realized that the camera that he had wasn't working. And so he didn't have any of those moments on tape. Uh, all those things that he had recorded, none of them actually were captured on tape. And so, so he ran to the store. He was fuming. 
and he, he went to the store and he said, just give me the best camera that you have, right? Like, I'm, this is never going to happen to me again. So they, he, they went and got a camera. And so growing up, we had this nice camera about the size of a football um, that uh, had a little compartment for the little tapes that we could put in and record. It had a little thing that you could look through. Um, it was a really nice uh, little camera from the 90s. And, uh, and so it's fun uh, every now and then going back through those stacks of tapes and just watching uh, those moments, right? Because for my whole life, that camera was present at a lot of the big moments in our life. And so, and so we get to go back every now and then and, and go through the tapes and watch, uh, watch the tapes and see, uh, see those moments. Sometimes those moments are even uh, things that I don't have any memory of, right? There's nothing, I, I don't remember it at all. So it's fun uh, to go back and watch those. So my family and I, a few years ago, were, were watching through those tapes. And we came across one that, that showed um, not, not my best moment in life. So now, that being said, I have no memory of this. Just a preface, I have no memory of this event, so it could be fake. <laughs> just, point, just throwing that out there, who knows, you know? Uh, but we, uh, we're, we came across this, ta uh, this tape where my sister and I, my twin sister and I, were in this kid's choir and putting on this performance. And for some reason, I don't know why, but for some reason, my sister and I had a duet, right? And so they... Uh, our, our moment came, and so we stepped to the front, and they handed us a mic, and the whole point is that we were both supposed to hold the mic together and sing into it together, and it would be this beautiful, although really pitchy, like twin duet, right? It's going to be great. Um, but as the song started and we began to sing, I saw my opportunity to shine, <laughs> right? Like if I was going to go to Broadway, I had to crush this performance, and so I... I decided I was going to take center stage. So throughout the song, you could see me start to wrestle the microphone away from my sister and bring it straight to me and just me. And so I turned our duet into a solo uh, in the performance. And the whole time, like her arms are still attached to it. And so she's just, she's just like holding it far out. And you can see during the song on the video, you can see her feelings are getting hurt. And so she's like holding the microphone and her tears are starting to well up. But I'm over there. The show must go on. And I'm over there singing my heart out, just crushing this solo performance, right? A lot of times, our lives are like my performance. We, we go out of our way to, to take the microphone, to take center stage, and to direct attention on us, right? Like, you, this may surprise you, but I'm not afraid of audiences. Like, I'm not afraid of crowds. And so I wanted all the attention on me. I wanted, I wanted everybody in that room to focus on me, and so many times we go about our lives, we operate in the world with the desire that people would notice us, that people would give us attention, that people would admire us and respect us and love us and hold us in high regard, that we would leave this great legacy for us. We have this desire within us to have attention, positive attention, and that desire then uh, leads to a lot of our words and a lot of our actions. We want to be thought well of, we want to be highly sought after, we want, to, we want to have that attention. And that's a natural part of being human. Right? That's a natural part of our, our fallen human nature. We, we want all of the attention for ourselves. That's, that's not foreign to any of us. We may not be like a celebrity, you know, so to speak. Like, like you may not like all the eyes in a room to be on you and, and everyone to give you complete attention, but we want recognition. We want people to think highly of us. We want people to notice us. We want attention. That's why it grates on us when, when someone else gets recognition for something that we did, right? Because we wanted that. And we want 
the positive attention. We want the focus. We want all eyes on us. And that's a natural human reaction that has played out throughout human history, and it shows up here in this story in Acts chapter 8. We pick up where we left off last week. Philip has come down from Jerusalem, or more likely up from Jerusalem, but has come over from Jerusalem into Samaria, and he is preaching the gospel. Right? He comes in to Samaria. He's performing signs and wonders, these miracles by the power of God, and he is preaching the gospel to the Samaritans. And the Samaritans are believing in Jesus. People are getting saved. Joy is bouncing off the walls in the city. Like This is an amazing moment here in Acts chapter 8. And at this moment, Luke decides to introduce us to a guy named Simon. Look with me in verse 9 of Acts chapter 8. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So we know Simon is a magician. Now, unfortunately, Luke doesn't give us a lot of context as to what he means by that. Now, he could mean one of two things, or maybe a combination of both. Either uh, Simon is the David Copperfield, Penn and Teller, Chris Angel of his day, right? Like, he is, he is an illusionist. He's performing these illusions to try to, to get the attention of the crowds, to try to get the, the, the crowds uh, of very superstitious Roman-era people uh, to love him and revere him, right? Think, think of a Las Vegas show. Only instead of getting paid a lot of money, people treat him like a god, right? Like that, that could be what he's doing. He's just an illusionist who's pulling these uh, quote-unquote miracles and tricks uh, and illusions to try to uh, get the crowds to love him and revere him and think highly of him. That could be it. Uh, number two, it could be that he is working either uh, intentionally or unintentionally with demons um, to perform these supernatural acts um, to convince the crowd that he's somebody special. Right, so it, Luke gives us no indication which one it is. Luke gives us no indication how he's performing these magic tricks, whether they're just tricks or whether they're kind of de demonic, supernatural things. Um, but either way, all we know, Simon is a magician, and he is apparently a really good one. Right, because everybody in Samaria loves this guy. Like He's performing these signs and these wonders and these miracles, and the crowd is just blown away. Like they're like, this guy is somebody great. And they say this again in verse 10, this guy is the power of God that is called great. Like they are blown away that he is such a good magician. Now I want to, I want you to notice some parallel uh, ideas here in the passage. Look with me back in verse 6 of Acts chapter 8. This is talking about Philip. It says in verse 6 of Acts chapter 8, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Now look with me in verse 10. Again, this one's about Simon. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that, that is called great again, verse 11. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So what Luke is doing is he is setting up Simon as this parallel person to Philip. Like there's, there's Simon and there's Philip. They're kind of foils of each other. They're the same uh, what, what's happening here with Simon is the same thing that's happening with Philip later on in, in, in the history of Samaria. Right, so Simon is performing miracles. Philip is performing miracles by the power of God. Simon is preaching a message. Philip is preaching a message. The only differences between the two of them are the level of power being shown 
the level of power on display, and the message being preached. And we'll get to the, the level of power on display in a second, but, but notice the difference, the biggest difference is in the message that is being preached. Because look at the message that Simon is preaching at the end of verse 9. He practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Again, verse 10, this man is the power of God that is called great. The message that Simon was proclaiming was, look at me. Like Simon was performing these miracles. Simon was performing these magic tricks. Simon was amazing people with all of his abilities. And the whole time, his desire was that the people would notice him. The whole time, his desire was that people would pay attention to him, that he would, they would respect him and honor him and revere him. It's the, he was taking the mic and walking to center stage. He wanted all eyes on him. Philip, notice what he was preaching. In verse 6, uh, or excuse me, verse 5 of chapter 8, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Verse 6, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So the difference is Simon is saying, all eyes on me. Give me all the attention. Give me the honor. Give me the respect. Give me the worship. Philip, when he was performing miracles by the power of God, he's saying, look at God. Philip was turning the attention and the the gaze of his audience towards the God who is worthy of all glory, who is worthy of all honor, who is worthy of all praise. And he was doing it specifically by pointing out to them that there is forgiveness of sins by his son, Jesus Christ. Simon's message was, look at me. Philip's message was, look at God. But the second difference between them is the level of power on display. Look with me in verse 6 again of chapter uh, 8. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Now look at verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So notice that when the power of God and the power of Simon were put on display side by side, there was no comparison. And for years, it says, for a very long time, Simon had amazed the crowds. Simon was, was, was blowing people's minds to the point where they said, that is somebody great. And they were looking at Simon and saying, that's a guy who has the power of God. Right? He had blown them away with his magic. And then Philip shows up with the actual power of God. And the crowd say, forget Simon, that guy is great. Like, that message is amazing. That's real power. And even Simon himself says, yeah, like, forget me. Like, that is real power. Like when, it, when you put the two in comparison, there is no comparison. God was showing off in his power in comparison to Simon. Right? There, there was, there was a, a distinct difference between the level of power on display. God has so much more power than Simon did. Simon's little tricks may have amazed the crowds, but God showed up and they weren't amazed anymore. <laughs> they realized 
man, God has so much more power than Simon does. And so they believed. Again, Philip was wielding this power. God was using Philip to perform these miracles, perform these signs, to perform these wonders. And the entire time, Philip was directing people's attention to God. The entire time, he was preaching to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they believed. And they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he continued on with Philip. And he was amazed by the miracles. Now, I, I want to take a, a really brief tangent here for a second. Just because somebody's baptized doesn't mean they're a Christian. Just because somebody has been dunked underwater doesn't mean that their eternity is secure in heaven. Things are going to play out in this text that are going to cause us to, to question whether Simon really is a follower of Jesus or not. And so I want us, I want us to be clear that just because someone's baptized doesn't mean they're a Christian. Now, we uh, have a process, and we, we're going to continue to have a process of, of evaluating people when they come forward for baptism, right? Because we want to be as certain as we possibly can be that when we put somebody forward for baptism in the church, that they're someone who has truly come to know Jesus, placed their faith in him. And so that's why uh, it's generally not wise, and, and I, I don't believe it's the best practice to have immediate baptism, right, where we, someone can come down the aisle and we can immediately put them underwater, uh, and we, we confirm before everybody, this person's a Christian, because uh, they may not be, <laughs> right, just because they've said the right words and, and checked the right boxes, that doesn't necessarily mean they're a Christian, and so we want to have at least a brief period of time where we can remove them from the emotional moment that may have generated the decision, and we can actually see, is there fruit in their life? Is there, are they saying and believing the right things? Like, is this person actually a follower of Jesus or not? Now, I'm not saying that immediate baptism is bad. Uh, in fact, uh, Acts chapter 8, and especially the next text that we'll get to next week, is the proof text people use to say we should do it, um, because it was used in the early church. But uh, my point is that it's generally not a wise practice. Because we want to be as certain as we can that we put someone forward for baptism, that there's someone who has placed their faith in Jesus, and we can confirm that together. But that's also why, under the direction of Jesus, we've been given uh, church discipline in the process of removing members. Because we need to be a body of believers. Like Our church needs to be made up of people who have placed their faith in Jesus. And if someone says they're a Christian, but their life doesn't look like it at all, their life doesn't give any evidence of it, we need to have a process of directing and correcting them in love. And that's what the process of church discipline is. And that's why Jesus tells us at the very end of the process of church discipline, you eventually lovingly remove them from the body of Christ and treat them like an unbeliever. If they continue in sin, if they continue to reject God, if they continue to live a life that is giving no evidence of salvation, you, you, you remove them from the body of believers and treat them like an unbeliever. Because we don't want anybody to continue on with life thinking that they're Christian just because they got dunked at some point in their life. We as a church want to be sure that the people around us are going to be with us for all of eternity, that we are all collectively glorifying God and raising him up, and that's why the process of church discipline exists. Because we're not perfect, and we may baptize people that actually haven't come to know Jesus. Um, they may have had an emotional moment. Phil, uh, Simon here uh, saw the power and was like, sure, I'll I love some of that, and so he, he was baptized. He seems like a Christian here, but we're really not sure, given the rest of the text. So 
I kind of step off the, the soapbox now and continue on with the passage. But, but just because someone's baptized doesn't make them a Christian. And that's why we have the process of, of, uh, of trying to verify someone's salvation before baptism and then the process of church discipline afterwards. Uh, but anyway, so Simon uh, seems to be a Christian. He's baptized. Uh, and then what happens next in verse 14 is the Jerusalem church, the apostles in Jerusalem, send some, uh, two of the apostles, Peter and John, down uh, to Samaria. Look at me in verse 14. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had o- only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what happened is the the apostles are up in Jerusalem and they're hearing what's going on in Samaria. They're hearing that the word of God is being preached. They're hearing that people are coming to know Jesus. They're hearing about this this awesome moment happening in Samaria, but they're also hearing that the Holy Spirit hasn't fallen yet, that the Holy Spirit hasn't come upon the people of Samaria yet. Now, I want to be clear here again um, because there's a lot of confusion with this passage. Uh, the, The delay in the Holy Spirit coming is not normal in the book of Acts. This delay between people coming to know Jesus and the Holy Spirit falling on them is not normal in Acts. It only happens a small handful of times, and the rest of the time, the vast majority of of the time, the Holy Spirit comes immediately upon the church. And so I think we as a church need to move with the assumption that that what's normal in the book of Acts is normal for the church today. That as we, as Christians, come to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes on us immediately. There's only, as as I said, a small handful, a few instances where our Holy Spirit is delayed. And this is one of them. And what seems to be happening is that the Holy Spirit is delayed when the, when the gospel proceeds to a new level. What do I mean by that? Up to this point, the Holy Spirit has come and the gospel has been preached to Jews in Jerusalem. And think with me back to Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit fell on the apostles and the believers there in the early church. And that church was composed entirely of Jews, former Jews who had converted to Christianity. And so the Holy Spirit came upon them, and the the apostles ministered in Jerusalem, the Christians ministered in Jerusalem, and people were coming to know Jesus. And when they're coming to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit was coming upon them. In fact, that's what what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. If you just believe in Jesus, you'll receive this gift of the Holy Spirit as well. And so the the Holy Spirit was immediately falling upon the Christians who were coming to know Jesus in the early part of Acts because they were Jews who were converting over to Christianity. And the Holy Spirit had already fallen on the Jews, but it had never fallen beyond that. And here's the first moment where the the gospel is proceeding out of Judaism and beginning to spread to the Samaritans. These Samaritans were this half-Jew, half-Gentile kind of hybrid. So this new type of people, a new race of people who had never experienced the gospel, and there's this delay in the Holy Spirit, and it seems to be so that the apostles can come down and can evaluate for themselves what's going on. They can take notice and witness what's happening here. And then notice what happens in verse 17. They laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now again, this act of laying on hands and the Holy Spirit coming through the laying on of hands is not normal in the book of Acts. Most of the time, the Holy Spirit just comes. There's no laying on of the apostles' hand, which is good for us today because the 13 apostles are not around anymore, right? And so if, if we needed the apostles to lay their hands on us to be saved, we're in trouble. 
Uh, like if, if we needed uh, them to lay hands on us for the Holy Spirit, that's a problem. Um, and so uh, that's not normal for the book of Acts. Again, it seems to be tied directly to this delay. Because the Samaritans, for the very first time, were experiencing the gospel. And for the very first time, we're experiencing the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so it seems to be that God is working in this moment, in this delay, uh, for a very particular reason. That God is sending Peter and John as representatives of the apostles to come down and to witness the fact that God, the Holy Spirit, will fall on people whether they're Jews or not. That God, the Holy Spirit, can fall on Samaritans just as much as he can fall on Jews. And then on the flip side, it gives the Samaritans a reason to look back and say the apostles have authority. The apostles have uh, reason to, we have reason to believe and trust in the apostles who, through whom we have the New Testament. Um, it gives them the opportunity to, to look back and say the apostles do have authority over us as well. And so it's this both uh, moment where the apostles can see the Holy Spirit expand into, the, into Samaria and the Samaritans can say the apostles have authority over us as a church and as believers. So that seems to be the reason for the delay. The Holy Spirit falls on them. And again, we have this great moment where the Holy Spirit is falling on Samaria and the power of God is on display. Like again, the, put this in comparison with what Simon was doing with his little tricks. Maybe he was doing like a little levitation. I don't know, whatever he was doing. Like maybe he was, he was trying to, to show off to the Samaritans to get them to like him, to get them to give him attention, and that he was amazing them. But then God shows up, and there's no comparison. The power of God was on full display. He was casting out demons. People were being healed, and the Holy Spirit was falling on the church. The power of God was at full display, and there was no comparison between the power of Simon and the power of God. And notice Simon's response to this power. Look with me. In verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So he has the audacity to ask for the power that the apostles are displaying here by the power of God. And he's, he says, if I just give you some money, if I give you some payment... Will you, will you give me this power? Now, this should raise some red flags for us immediately. Right? This is a guy who just before this had been trying to amaze people by his power. And this is a guy who, who just before this had been all about doing these miracles, performing these signs and wonders so that people could give him attention, so that people could, could lift him up and glorify him and praise him. This is a guy who wanted all eyes on him and was performing these miracles and these powers uh, to try to get that accomplished. And if you think that he wants the power of God to lift up the name of God in the world, um, then you're probably way too optimistic. <laughs> Here's a guy who wants to get the power of God that's on display here so that he can have all eyes back on him. Here's a guy who's the intention of his heart, the very desires, what he wants is for people to recognize him. He wants people to give him attention. He wants people to revere him and honor him and respect him. And so he's willing to even pay money for the power of God if he could just get that attention. If he could just get a, a piece of that power of God, then people could give him attention again. People would revere him again. People would be in awe of him again. And it sounds 
so religious, right? If I just give a little bit of money to the church, then I'll have the power of God working in my life. Like, man, that sounds beautiful. <laughs> that sounds so religious. And, and so often, you and I can use religious terms to try to actually get ourselves attention. Right? We can give a lot of money to the church, but I want my name on a plaque somewhere in the building. Right? Or, or I can, uh, this is the Christian who wants to give a lot of money to charity, but wants to be noticed for their generosity. Or we can, we can pray to God and ask for a promotion, ask for a bigger platform, and we, we'll say in our prayer, God, we just want to lift you up. We just want to make you known to more people. We just want to, be, to, to have more people that, we can, uh, that can recognize you through us. But we know in the deepest part of our soul that we really want that promotion. We really want that bigger platform just so people will notice us. So people will, will recognize us and respect us and affirm us. It can sound so religious like it does for Simon, but at the end of the day, Simon's heart is still, he wants the attention. He wants the glory. And notice Peter's response to Simon. Peter sees right through it, and he responds in verse 20. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought Silver, uh, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now, a, a better translation of that, a more direct translation, what, what Peter actually says to him there is you and your money can both go to hell. He says you and your resources have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. That, if that is evidence that Simon has not come to know Jesus yet, I don't know what is. Right? He says you and your money can perish because you thought that you could buy the power of God. Because the intention of your heart was to be noticed, was to be respected, was to be liked, and you thought if you could just give us some money that God would give you his power for that purpose. He goes on. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Verse 22, repent Therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Again, a better translation of that, if possible, is that uh, the Lord may forgive you, is the, is the idea. There is an offer of forgiveness there. It's not, uh, Peter isn't questioning whether God is capable of forgiving the intention of his heart. Um, but pray that the Lord may forgive you uh, of the intention of your heart. Verse 23, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. That's a, a literal translation. The better idea would be like kind of bitterly envious. It's kind of the idea there. He says, I see that you are bitterly envious and in the bond of iniquity. Peter sees right through it and he says, you just want attention. You just want the glory. You want people to respect you and to notice you. And notice that Peter says there is no place in the kingdom of God for people to steal the, the attention and the glory that God is due. He says, you just want the attention for yourself, but in reality, God is the one that deserves the attention and the glory and the honor and the praise. Notice what Philip and Peter and John do when they proclaim the gospel, when, the, when, the, when miracles are performed through them, when the Holy Spirit is falling through them, when they see all of these happen, Philip Peter and John are constantly directing people's attention back to the glory of God. And they're constantly pointing people back 
to the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But Simon, he just wants to steal that attention for himself. He wants people to respect him and honor him instead of God. This is the pastor that wants to build a big church just so he can become a little celebrity. Again, this is the Christian that wants to give a lot of money to charity, that wants to, be, uh, that wants to be very generous because they want people to notice them for their generosity. This is the Christian that wants to serve in the church or wants to serve their community so that other people would just notice how good they are and how kind they are and how, uh, how servant-like they are. There is no place in the kingdom of God for us to try to steal the attention and the honor and the glory that God is due. Because all attention, all praise, all worship, all glory should be directed towards God. And there is no place for us to steal it. He goes on in verse 24. Simon responds and says, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Now, Scholars differ in this response. Some say that this is him genuinely repenting and saying, uh, you know, forgive me. Like, give, pray for me so that, so that I can have uh, this new heart that you're uh, talking about. This could be him genuinely repenting. This could also be him refusing to pray for himself like Peter told him to do and saying, now you pray for me. Right? There's really no indication in the text of whether Simon actually genuinely repents and turns from his sin. Uh, the early church about uh, leaders about 100 years after this event, they tried to tie Simon to one of the first heresies that came into the church. And they called Simon the, the father of all heresies. Right? I, I don't know that we can really get that from, from the text. Uh, we don't really know from the text whether Simon repented and believed or uh, continued in his uh, desire for attention and glory. We really don't know, but that's not the point. The point of the story that Luke is trying to get to us is not whether Simon repented and believed or not. The point of the story is that Luke wanted to, to show us, to highlight Simon's heart, that he was uh, in it for himself, that he was in it for his attention, and, and Luke wanted us to reflect on that. And then we, he wants us to reflect on Peter's response that there is no place in the kingdom of God for people to steal the attention and the glory that is due God. Here's the main idea. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. God is infinitely more impressive than you. God is infinitely more impressive than you. So direct attention to the one who deserves it. You may have crowds of people convinced that you are somebody great, but God is not impressed. And that may sound really harsh, right? You're like, ouch, that hurts. Um, but in reality, I don't want to worship a God who's impressed by me. Like, I don't want to worship a God who is amazed by me. I don't want to worship a God who is amazed by my wisdom and intelligence and power. Like, I don't want to worship that God because that God is an idol. It's a false idea. We are amazed by magicians because we don't know how the trick works. I am amazed by people who can code because I have no idea what's going on. But if you're a master coder, then somebody who's just doing some rudimentary codes is not amazing to you. That's not impressive to you. I don't want a God that is amazed by me, that is impressed by me. Because that God is way too small. 
in reality. God is so infinitely more powerful than us, so infinitely greater than us, so much more good than us, so much wiser than us, so much more all-knowing and powerful than us, that he is worthy of all worship. We should be in awe of him. We should be amazed by him in any time that we try to direct attention to ourselves or directing it away from the one who deserves it. Anytime that we try to set ourselves up as somebody who is great, anybody we try to, anytime we try to get the people around us to revere us and honor us and respect us and lift us up, it's taking away the glory and the honor that God is due. You may be worthy of worship in comparison to other human beings, but you will never be worthy of worship in comparison to the God who knows all things, who is all-powerful, who is all-good, the creator of the universe. You will never be worthy of worship in comparison to him. So stop directing attention to yourself and direct it to God. Stop trying to get people to love you, to lift you up, to revere you, and start turning people's attention, turning their gaze to the God who created all things. God is worthy of all attention and glory and honor. The number one way that we can point out the glory of God, the number one way that we can show uh, who God is, the number one event that displays the characteristics of God, his wisdom, his power, his love, and his mercy is by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, his son. Because that event shows that God is all-powerful, that he is all-wise, that he can fix what's broken, and that he loves us and cares for us. And so when we proclaim the gospel, when we proclaim the good news, that there's forgiveness by the death and resurrection of his son, we're pointing people to the goodness and the glory of God. We need to be people to lift up and glorify God. In reality, we're all people that try to get attention for ourselves. We're all the, the high schooler that, that tries to get his peers to love him, to respect him. We're all the, the manager that tries to get her subordinates to, 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 to respect her by maybe being the cool manager that, that's talked highly of behind the scenes just so that, so that her subordinates will talk highly of her. We're all the, the doctor who insists on, uh, on introducing herself as Dr. So-and-so just so they know who we're talking about. Like we all have those instincts, those, those words, those actions that try to get people to notice us and to think highly of us. But the good news for us is the same thing that was preached to Simon, that there is forgiveness of our sins. That there is the opportunity for a new heart that wants to focus attention on God instead of ourselves. And that comes through Jesus Christ. That if we turn from our sins and we place our faith and our trust in Jesus, he will forgive us and he will give us a new heart that wants to glorify and to honor God with our lives instead of ourselves. We are a church that is a family of faith living for eternity today. And if we're going to do that, we have to be a church that directs attention to God instead of ourselves. We have to be a church that interacts with the world in a way that they see the glory of God. They catch just a brief glimpse of his goodness and his love and his majesty that begin to see just a little bit of his love and his grace for them. We need to be a church that goes out and lifts people's eyes from the temporary world that they inhabit and begin to see the glory and the greatness of God. 
We need to be a church that goes out and causes Roanoke and Trophy Club and Keller and Justin and the nations of the world to lift their eyes up and to behold the beauty and the glory of God. We need to be a church that does that if we're going to be a church living for eternity today. Because God is so much more impressive than us. So why would we direct attention to ourselves? This morning, there are things in your life that you're doing to direct attention to yourself. And the word of God is correcting us and calling us to reorganize our life to direct attention and glory to God. Maybe it's in conversations we have where we allow the gospel to shine through. Maybe it's in the work that we do where we do it in a way that aligns with and lifts up the glory of God. Maybe it's in uh, the, the way that we interact with the world where we stop doing things and, and we recognize that, that the things that we're doing are really to lift ourselves up and we stop doing those things and we begin to organize our lives in a way that lifts up and glorifies God. We need to be a church that does that. Some of you here this morning need to heed the warning uh, that Peter gave to Simon because you know that you are living for yourself, that you have never repented and turned from your sin, and you are in desperate need of a new heart. And heed the warning and the beautiful good news that there is forgiveness for your sins if you will turn from your sin, if you will stop trying to lift yourself up and make yourself known and turn to Jesus and trust him for the forgiveness of of your sin. There is good news and the chance at eternal life. This morning we're about to sing. As we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. If you need to place your faith in Jesus, for the very first time, I would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Christ, what it means to receive a new heart that isn't focused on you, but is instead focused on the glory of God. I'll be right here as we sing. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of our worship. We all have way too small a view of you. God, if if you were to magnify our view of you by ten times or a hundred times or a thousand times, it would still be too small. God, it is impossible for us to have a full, accurate view of you, God, where we, we lift you up to the level that you deserve. Because, God, you are infinitely better than us. all the things in our lives that we think are impressive, all the things in our lives that we want people to notice, that we want people to to lift up, all the things in our lives we want people to respect and like about us, God, I pray that we would recognize that they are insignificant in comparison to you. And that what people really need to do is not to lift us up, not to look at us, not to worship us, but instead to direct their gaze on your glory on your beauty and to experience the forgiveness of their sins that comes through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that we would be a church that lifts you up and that glorifies you. And I pray that anyone here who needs to enter into a relationship with you for the very first time, who needs to turn from their sins, to reject their selfishness, and to turn to you and to receive a new heart, God, I pray that this morning would be the morning that they do that. We love you, praise you, and it's in the name of your son Jesus that we pray. Amen.